Why don't you turn to the first chapter of the book of Ezra? We're just going to look at the first five verses of this book. And as I always remind our people, whenever we are coming to God's words, I once heard someone say, we don't come to God's word to sit over it in judgment. It's a common reality these days. So many people coming to God's word to sit over it in judgment. When we come to God's word, we come to sit under it as a waterfall of truth and grace to our lives. Truth and grace to our lives. Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that's the word of the Lord by the, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus, and this is where you've got to put on your kind of official announcement voice, right? Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuilds the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem." And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Announcement over. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Father, we thank you for your beautiful words. We thank you that you cause it to be that waterfall of truth and grace to us that shapes us, that corrects us, that charges us, that clarifies for us, and that commissions us more into your purposes. We pray that your word would achieve its full purpose in our hearts and lives this morning, Jesus. Amen. The first thing that we need to recognize about this text is that Cyrus, I'm not sure if you just get to the book, right? You haven't done any of the kind of history and context on it. You might feel like, hey, Cyrus is their leader and Cyrus happens to be the king of the time. The first thing you've got to realize is that Cyrus is not actually on the side of the people of God in this context. If you look at some of the historical dynamics, what we come to understand is actually Cyrus is the conqueror of the conqueror's Of the people of God. He's the conqueror of the conquerors. See, in 722 BC, the 10 northern tribes, well, they get conquered uh, by the Assyrians, right? Then 140 years or so later, in 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah is conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, and they get pulled off by the Babylonians. They get pulled off to Babylon, and they're in exile in Babylon. That's why he says, wherever you find yourself sojourning, because they've all been pulled away from their place, and they find themselves sojourning in the context of Babylon. And now 36 years after the people of God, the kind of southern kingdom of Judah has arrived in Babylon, we see Cyrus the Great conquering Babylon. 
So he's the conqueror of their conquerors. But why is this important? Why is it important for us to realize that he's not on the side of the people of God? Well, the answer is found as we see God move in on him and use him. The answer is this, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. See, the faithfulness of God is being outworked. And some commentators say that the kind of meta-narrative of the, the reason for this book of Ezra being written is so that the faithfulness of God can be declared. So point one is that God speaks. And point two is that God is committed to his, his plans and his promises and his purposes. I would hope that I don't have to remind those amongst us that are Christ followers that God speaks. This should be one of the things that we are so aware of in our lives, right? And, and I've done the unthinkable and got up here without my Bible. There it lies. I wanted to shake it at you right now. But the truth is God has spoken. He has spoken through his word and he has spoken through his son. And we have the spirit who continues to speak to us. We need to be a people who understand that we follow a God who speaks. This is so vitally important for us. And when God speaks and he declares his plans and his purposes, can he lie? He cannot, for he is God. He's God. And so when he declares his plans and his purposes, he is faithful in every way to see them fulfilled. And we see here in this un, most unlikely moment, imagine you are amongst the people of God in this moment, and you've been for 36 years in exile. And you, you've been dragged away and you're not living in your space and you're not living in your place and you don't feel safe. And you're concerned about your kids because they're kind of starting to compromise and they're being sucked into the culture that you're living amongst. And, and you regularly are praying for them, but you've got great concerns. How long are we going to be here? Will we ever return to our place? Will we ever be able to be a people again? And you're in that kind of context. And then more army guys come. More big bad conquerors come and they come and they conquer. They conquer your conquerors. And you're kind of thinking, man, when it comes to the hierarchy around here, we're just getting pressed down another layer. And yet, in the faithfulness of God, in this most unlikely moments, God gets hold of the hearts of King Cyrus the Great. And he calls him to fulfill his purpose calls him. This should remind us that no political power, no king, no virus, no setbacks, or even evil intent, intent of people, none of these things will prevent God from achieving and fulfilling his purpose and his plan as he has declared it. None of those things. At times, we might feel like things around us are in chaos. Anybody felt like that in the last while? We might feel that our circumstances are completely dire. We may even feel at times out of control. Jeremy just mentioned the kind of statistics on male suicide. People feeling out of control at a loss. But God is ultimately still in control. And in this moment, the most powerful king of the time bows to the plans and purposes of God. How often... Though do we find ourselves doubting God? God, will you really do what you've promised? God, do you really have us in your hands, Lord? Do you see me? Do you know me? 
God, can I trust you? God is always faithful to his plans and his promises. Sometimes he may not be coming through for us because maybe it wasn't his plan and his promise in the first place. That's happened to me a few times. Come out of high school and I'm like, man, why is it that I drive a little Honda and that guy, he was, he was, he was a little slower than me at school, right? But now he's driving a BMW. Lord, don't leave me behind, Lord. Remember me. That's how fickle the human heart is. And God's kind of like, well, maybe I didn't fulfill on that promise because that wasn't my promise. Maybe he's trying to teach us something. Maybe we, like the people of God, have been carried off into a season of exile so that he can do his purifying work in us. Then it's about us submitting to his faithful purpose in us. Because he's promised that he will do a perfecting work in us. And sometimes our circumstances are the best way for him to achieve that purpose. We have to recognize that that. Maybe it's just not his timing yet. For 36 years, they're sitting there in exile. And they're waiting, they're longing, they're praying. And God, have you forgotten us? Have you left us? And God in his perfect time comes. Now, all three of those sermons are sermons for a different time, right? But sometimes we've got to recognize that as we call out to God, He is still God, and He is still faithful, but He's coming in His time to fulfill His purpose. So let me ask you, Grace, which of God's promises do you need to freshly hold on to today? Which of God's promises do you freshly need to be reminded of and freshly submit to God again? See, God's promises are both very uh, general and specific in, word, in His Word. There are so many general and specific promises in the Word of God to us as His people. And we need to familiarize ourselves with the Word of God so that we can hold to the promises of God. When it feels like things are a little on the short side, anybody else get to the end of their month and there's more month than there is money? That ever happened to anybody else other than me? When that happens, you kind of go, God, have you forgotten me? Have you abandoned me? Where are you, Lord? Won't you provide? And you can remind yourself of the promises of God that he said, man, so much more than the birds of the sky. You are dear to me. I look after them. I'll look after you may not be caviar and French cheese, but he's going to look after us, right? Obviously, there's so many things that he would say to this church, but there's so many things that God, through his word, would want us to remember personally, individually. Let me ask you today, what promises has God spoken over your life specifically? Maybe there's some of those that you need to be reminded of and you need to hold out to God again and say, Lord, I'm reminding you of this. I know you're faithful. You have not forgotten. Help me understand your time. Help me understand your time. In the late 1670s, many of us will know this famous, most famous book was written called The Pilgrim's Progress, right? And it's of this man and his name's Christian and it's this Analogy. I never had to know how to say that. Allegory. allegory. Yes, I always get it wrong. Analogy. It's not an analogy. It's an allegory of this guy called Christian, right? And Christian is going from the city of destruction to the celestial city. Don't put that up yet. Um, 
he's actually don't put it up at all. I want you guys to be in your minds, right? And he's, he's, he's journeying. Christian is journeying towards the celestial city. And it's this picture of journeying from kind of the hellish city to the heavenly city. And, and the reality is he's got this friend and his friend is named Hope. Hopeful. And Hopeful journeys with him, right? And they get to this place where the giant... The giant gets a hold of him and he throws them into this um, doubting castle. The giant's name is Despair. He throws them into Doubting Castle. And they're stuck there and they're being punished and they're kind of near death. And then they say these beautiful words to each other, which I want to read you. Don't put it up. Just be in your head. I want you to visualize it. It's more powerful. And Christian says to his friend, Hopeful, He says, what a fool I have been to lie like this in this stinking dungeon when I could have just as well walked free. In my chest pocket, I have a key called promise. That will, I am thoroughly persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, that is good news, my good brother. Do immediately take it out of your chest pocket and try it. Then Christian took the key from his chest pocket. He began to try the lock of the dungeon door. And as he turned the key, the bolt unlocked the door and it flew open with ease so that Christian and Hopeful immediately came out. See, John Bunyan had grasped The reality that God's promises are like a key, that key called promise. And they have the potential to release us from all the dungeons in Doubting Castle. That is the human experience. And as we walk with God, here's what we have to realize. That yes, hope can be a companion to us. Hope can be a companion to us. But it's only the promises of God that can unlock the doors of the dungeon. Does that make sense? And we need to invite God's hope to be that companion to us, but we need to hold to God's promises as the key called promise to open his doors and his times. Let's continue in the passage. The Lord stirred up the spirit, right, of Cyrus, king of Persia. So we see God speaks and God is faithful to achieve his purposes and his promises. Let's see what happens next. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Very likely the most powerful person on earth in the moment. And I'm excited to hopefully get to see, I believe in the British Museum, there's some artifacts from King Cyrus that are still there, which reminds us, these are facts of history. These are not bedtime stories that people read their children to comfort them, right? These are facts of history, God working amongst humanity. It says, God has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now we start to see God is faithful, and and because he's faithful, he speaks, but he also holds to his promises and his purposes. But now we start to see how God goes about accomplishing some of his purposes and his promises. And the third thing we see is that God, and this is, is true in this text, but it's also true in so many texts throughout the scripture. We see when God wants to achieve his plans and his purposes, he catalyzes those purposes by stirring up the hearts of a leader or leaders. 
So often the case. I just love the conviction. Did you, as I read those verses, did you see the conviction of this king? Yes, he's the most, most powerful person alive. So, man, if he says this is what I want, then pretty much that's what he's going to largely get, right? But he still operates out of a conviction which does not just come from his power. He operates out of, and his title, he operates out of a conviction from his understanding and perspective. I'm not sure if you see it here, but let's look through each of these things. He says... Whoever among you, carry on in verse 3, says, whoever among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. See, and I think Cyrus, more so than just having a powerful position and and having power because of that position, Cyrus saw some things very differently and he operates in a conviction and a confidence because of what he recognizes and sees. Firstly, it's clear that Cyrus sees these people as God's people, not his people. His God. His people, I mean, not his God, his people. Secondly, I think Cyrus will... He knows that these people will see this as God's work and then see God as worthy of the work. And thirdly, I think he knows that ultimately God will be with them. May his God be with them. Cyrus confidently calls the people to participate in this work that he feels like God has charged him to do because he he recognizes these things. Next time Andrew or Jeremy or one of the leaders stands up here in Grace London and starts to speak to you as a people around, hey, we feel like God has put this charge in our hearts and we're going to go in this direction or we're calling you to do this. My hope is they will do it because they recognize that you are God's people. They'll do it with confidence and conviction. That God is the one who is speaking. This is not their clever leadership strategies. God is the one who is speaking and he is going to fulfill his purpose and we want to participate in that. But they would primarily recognize that you are God's people, not theirs. Secondly, that they would hopefully have a confidence that you would see the work they're calling you to as God's work. Not their work, God's work and that all of you would collectively and together have a confidence that God ultimately has promised he will be with us. He'll be with us. Again, this should be so encouraging to us as the people of God. I want to take a minute and tell you a story from my own experience. So in September, 10 years ago, I was asked to give a leadership to, I mean, you said a whole bunch of very kind, flattering, and half-true things about our church. Thank you, Andrew. Um, but 10 years ago, I was asked to give a lead to our Common Ground Rondebosch congregation, And stepping into that, I felt very soon after stepping into leadership, God just speak to me about this kind of piece of land that was standing open on our property. And I felt like we had underinvested in the next generation. We'd underinvested in youth and children and those kinds of things. And God just put this kind of conviction in my heart that we needed to build a facility that would serve the next generation and cause us to be able to, we we kind of in the middle of Schoolville where we are, that we'd be able to see many high schoolers and uh, junior schoolers coming and being served on our property there. And so I went to the leaders, and the leaders were all excited, and I went to the church. We as a leadership team stood before the church, and we saw an amazing thing happen. The people rallied, 
And, and people were very generous towards the purposes of God through that initiative. And we saw a bunch of these funds raised and we had about 60% of the funds raised, and we had kind of said, until we have 50%, we're not going to push go on, on actually starting to build. And then we had 60%, so we pushed go, and so it took eight months to build this building. And while this building's being built, just the income towards that project just dried up almost completely, right? And it went from 60% to about 70%, which is phenomenal. To move into a building with 70% of it paid off, that was phenomenal. But I'd felt God speak very specifically and very clearly to me that we would have seen that building paid off before we turned the key. And, and we see any ministry happening there. And it was in my heart as a leader to not feel like we in monthly ministry are held back from what God's doing and being able to activate ministry and mission and be generous. So that really lived in my heart as a leader. And on one of the Sundays I got in front of the church, we, we'd just almost finished building and we we're going to move in in a couple of weeks. And I just got in front of the church for most probably about the fifth or something time. And I said, hey guys, this is where we're at. And, and I try to use all my leadership strategy and wisdom. And I try to really paint a compelling picture and do all of those things that people say you should do. And I went to my car after the meeting and I had a man tantrum. Do you know what a man tantrum is? Yes. Why did some people like shake their heads so violently there, right? Yes, I know. You're like busy jabbing your husband or what? The, the, the man tantrum that I have goes like this <laughs> on my steering wheel, right? And I hit the steering wheel and I'm like, Lord, I am not a fundraiser. I am a pastor and I'm not going to speak to anybody again ever about money. I cannot ask another single person for another cent. Lord, I'm done. A few more times on the steering wheel, right? Drive home. I mean, honestly, the, I thought I'd shared a compelling vision and I'd Saw people falling asleep over there and over there, right? The next day, one of our elders, I hadn't yet to confess my sin before the Lord with my man tantrum. But the next day, a friend of uh, one of our elders phones me and says, Hey, Ryan, are you sitting down? So I said, Yeah, tell me more. What, what? And I was expecting bad news. But he says, Ryan, do you know so-and-so? And I'm not going to give you his name. I was like, Yeah, I know that guy. He comes to church about once a year or so, Right? <laughs> says, well, so-and-so phoned me this morning, and uh, he was in church yesterday, and he said he hadn't heard about the building project yet. Tells you how often he comes to church, right? Because we've been talking about it for like eight months or something. Most probably 10 months. And, and he said, while he was sitting in church, and you were speaking, he just felt God say, this is his burden to carry. And so what is 30% actually? <laughs> you know, he wanted the, now the Rand figure. And, and then he said, cool, I'll transfer that across. And he took care of the whole 30% himself. Completely paid off. And I found myself so humbled in that moment. Because God speaks. He's faithful to his promises. I find myself so naturally doubting him and so many of these things so often. I so find myself initially gearing into leadership gear, not dependence gear. So get up there and lead and do everything I can do and use all my personal strengths. And then have a man tantrum at God because I've been using my own strengths and not fully depending upon him. And when he says, hey, like your little two-year-old kid slamming on the floor, whatever it is, are you quite done? And when you're quite done with all your initiatives and all your man tantrums, God says, now I will fulfill my promises because I am faithful. I learned a vital lesson that day. 
These are not my people. These are God's people. These are not my plans and purposes. These are God's plans and purposes, which he has put in my heart as a leader because God uses leaders to catalyze his plans and purposes. And I must not be ashamed as a leader to step forth and be used by God, but at the same time, I must not depend upon myself. And ultimately, God will lead his people. He'll speak to his people, and he'll see his plans and purposes fulfilled. He provided every penny for that. And the people will see God worthy of his work because it's his work. Those lessons became so true to me in that moment. Leaders here, Grace, how are your conviction levels? How are your confidence levels in God? What has God promised of and spoken of in this church, and where may your conviction and your confidence levels be low? Wherever those are low, just look at those things and go, yep, it's true. We are not enough. We are not enough. We cannot do it, but God, you are enough, and you have spoken, and we know you cannot turn out of your faithful character. You cannot turn upon your own self, and so won't you fulfill your purposes in our generation. God loves it when we're dependent on him. Right now, I want everybody in, in this auditorium to quickly think, what is one thing that you have learned the dependence lesson on in your relationship with God? See, God loves it when we're dependent on him, and so he brings these little lessons across our path so that we would deepen our dependence on him. And I just shared my story. I'm sure you've got stories too. But God wants to deepen our dependence on him. And my experience is the less we learn the lessons, the more opportunity to learn the lessons he brings along. <laughs> Can I invite you freshly, leaders of Grace London, to find your conviction and your confidence in these things. God himself has called you and charged you. These are God's people and God's plans, not yours. These people see God as worthy of the work you are calling them to, and ultimately God is with you. God is with you. Like I said at the beginning, I feel like God's saying he will use this church for the well-being of this city. He will use it in London and for London, but he will also use it to send people back to the places that God has brought them from. The Lord the God of heaven has charged you to build a church in Waterloo, which is here in London. Just place your own story into that text. God doesn't want any leaders to in any way cower to a Babylonian-type exile. See, the story continues, and we see a bunch of people don't actually make it back to Jerusalem. A bunch of people end up staying and assimilating and just kind of becoming part of the culture there, and they don't step into the fullness of God's plans and purposes. And I believe that it's our responsibility as leaders in the church to call us out, to call us out of kind of cultural assimilation and into the purposes of God. Let's look at the final step in how God goes about accomplishing his purpose. He's faithful, so he speaks. And he's committed to his promises and his purposes. And then he catalyzes those purposes often by stirring up the heart of the leader. But fourthly, then, we see that God's purposes are achieved when the people rise up. 
Rise up and take their place, play their part. Verse 5, then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites and everyone whose spirit God had stirred. Who had done it? God had stirred. Was this the rousing speech and announcements of King Cyrus? No, not nearly as much as the stirring work of the creator of the universe in their hearts stirred them to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. I like this. I'm not sure about you. But I like it that God doesn't just say, hey, here's my plan and purpose, and here's my leader that I'm going to use to catalyze it. So, Andrew, here's the plan and the purpose. Now, you just go and tell the people, and you get them motivated, and you get them going. And you... No, God doesn't do that, Right? God says, here is my plan and purpose. Here is a leader I'm going to use. And guess what? I am going to come alongside the people and I'm going to stir them up to my purpose. Much better than the leader just having to carry the full weight of that responsibility. Everyone who spirit God had stirred up to go and these people go, it says, and to go and to rebuild. I wonder, what does it look like to be a stirred up people here at Grace? I find myself just wanting to say, what does a stirred up Brit look like, right? (laughs) It's still an anomaly to me. I'm still trying to figure it out. What does a stirred up Brit look like? And one of my friends, he's a very introverted guy. He's Afrikaans and he goes, it looks like I'm just sitting still, but I'm actually jumping up and down inside, right? And he's like this stoic dude. He just looks at you. I I love that. But what does it look like to... To be a stirred up people here at Grace, what does it look like for God to, 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 in a sense, call you into more of his plans and purpose? Maybe let me ask you, what are you stirred up about in your life? I'm a big rugby fan. I get more stirred up when the British Lions come to Cape Town and get beaten. <laughs> I just had to throw that in there for Andrew. No, but I get sometimes I get more stirred up about my holiday that's coming up. There's like an excitement growing in me. And I feel like some excitement. What do you get stirred up about? When you think about it, it just gives you a natural surge of energy. You just want to go. You want to make it happen. Your career, your next holiday, your relationship status, your future. Are these the things that ultimately stirred us up? None of these things are wrong, but they are less than. They are less than. That's not the invitation here. The invitation here is for us to be a stirred up people to the purposes of God, to his will, to what he is doing, to what he is doing. I remember I grew up in... South Africa in a little town uh, from when I was 10 to when I finished my trick, a little Afrikaans town called Wellington. And there's the, we pretty much, in our context, we found ourselves going to a very traditional church, and, and good work happened through that church, but my young experience of that was not of good work. My young experience of that was being in a boarding school, being forced into my school uniform and marched down in single file down the road into church, in the back of the church, sitting there pretty much Sunday after Sunday. And it was lifeless to me. I could see it meant something to others, but it was lifeless to me. And I remember holy discontent jumping into my heart when I saw one of the leaders who walked down to the front 
the day before get into a fight on the side of the rugby fields. And it just, it was such an awful and brutal fight. And then the next day he came wandering into the church context and kind of rolled down to the front greeting everybody. And in my 15-year-old heart, something broke inside of me. And I remember saying, as I pushed past all my kind of school mates, all sitting in their school uniforms, I pushed past them. And I got to the end of the row, and there was one of the housemasters sitting there. And I pushed past the housemaster who was trying to get me to sit down. And I pushed past him, and I ran all the way back down that road, all the way to the boarding school. And I sat on the steps in front of the boarding school, just bawling my eyes out, going, God, if that is your church, I want nothing to do with it. Something that day, a holy discontent, a brokenness, a a righteous kind of injustice had taken place, that that would be what I experienced as kind of this duality in, in God's people. And it broke me. And for about five years, I ran. I just ran. And then one day I was sitting, I, was, I got onto a train, I was in the States. I got onto a train and my Australian girlfriend had broken up with me and she was heading to South America. And I was going from New York to my sister's house in Kansas City and that's a long train journey. And I got onto that train and in a place of complete depletion within myself, I remember saying these words, God, if if you are real like my parents say you are, then this is my moment and I need you. I need you now. And I felt the tangible love of God come upon me in such great power. Such great, I have never experienced kind of the waves of the love of God quite like that in my whole life before or since that moment. And I felt God's just love, his love just so overwhelming me. I bawled my eyes out for about three or four hours. This is not exaggerating. For three or four hours, I think almost every other person in that carriage tried to come and console me because I was ugly crying like, like I was, I was completely overwhelmed and chunking. And like people pretty much rotated, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm fine, I'm fine. And just crying and crying and crying. And in that moment, I felt God say to me a few things. Ryan, this changes everything for your life. It was a deep knowing. It wasn't an audible voice. It just was a deep knowing. But with such great clarity, this changes everything for your life. And I knew what that meant because I'd been telling all my mates through high school that I was going to pretty much find rich people and I was going to work for them and then their money was going to work for me. That was my whole deal, right? I'd worked it out at age 13 that if you work for rich people and get their money to work for you, you too can become rich. And so I was going to do that. And I felt God say, this is going to change everything for your life. And I knew that that was no longer going to be the dream. And I felt God say a second thing, God, uh, Ryan, there is a greater hope for my church. I felt in that Genesis moment that God was dealing with that thing that had happened when I was 15 and my heart broke for a duality in the church which does not represent him. And I felt God say to me, Ryan, this, there's got to be a, there is a greater hope for my church. And the third thing is I felt like him saying he would, he would involve me in that. And that day I did not know what the promises or the plans or the purposes of God would be, but I did know that my life was going to be different and that I was going to be participating in building the kind of church that both I and Jesus would want to participate in. What has God stirred in you? What stirs you? That purpose, whenever I find myself just a little bit low 
And Andrew said a bunch of nice things about our church. I'll, take, I'll tell you right now, our church has taken a beating over the last three years. We've been through some of the most difficult things a church can go through in the last three years. And in that time, I have felt God regularly take me back to this point. Your life is different because of me, right? What dreams are you chasing? What aspirations do you have? I have a plan and a purpose, and I'm going to use you involved in it. There is a greater hope for my church, and you're welcome to participate in it. I believe God would want to say the same thing to you. What are your plans and your purposes for your life? May it be that God would want to call you even into much more a heavenly curriculum, an eternal reality, a participating in the purposes of God that will have fruit that lasts forever into eternity. How many of us need to get off the the hamster wheel? Do you know what the hamster wheel is? The hamster wheel goes like this. I get born. Hopefully, I get to go to a good school so that I can hopefully go to a great university so that I can hopefully get a good job so that I can hopefully find a cool spouse so that I can hopefully do really well to create little ones of me so that they can hopefully do what? Be born into a, go to a great school, into a great job, into a great... And the hamster wheel of life can have a whole lot of activity and not a lot of purpose. And God invites us to put that down and he invites us into his plans and his purposes for our lives. I wonder what that might look like for your life. Do you need to possibly pray a fresh prayer of inviting God to stir things up in your life? Here's the beautiful transaction dynamic. If you're just in the council with us this morning, he knows you best. He loves you most. So when he calls you into something, It is the very best that you can be called into. He knows you best. He loves you most. I'm not saying that is all kind of the graphs are going up and to the right. That's not what I'm saying at all. Just look at all his disciples. Look at his son. Sometimes in an earthly economy, that doesn't completely add up. But he knows us best and he loves us most. And he's welcoming us into his perfect plans and his purposes. And I'm not sure about you, but for me, I know this to be so true. Kate and I say it so often that there is nowhere in the world that we would rather be than inside the purpose of God. Nowhere in the world. What does that look like for you today? Maybe you found yourself coming into the venue today and you wouldn't even consider yourself a Christ follower. Maybe you're still deciding what you believe about these things. Maybe you're trying to understand the claims of the Christian faith and who God is and how this Christianity thing works. Let me just tell you, we are still trying to figure out how this Christianity thing works. God is taking us from one degree to the next, right? And, and you're invited into that. But don't miss the grace of God. Most important stuff that you can grapple with in your life is the answers to these big questions. And I love what Jeremy just invited everyone to. Come and grapple with some of the answers to these big questions. These are life-changing, eternity-altering realities that we are dealing with here. There's an invitation. This community would love to journey with you. We've spoken about the faithfulness of God. He speaks. He's faithful to his promises and his purposes. And those are fulfilled when leaders step up and catalyze those purposes. And those are fulfilled ultimately when the people rise up and they participate in God's work. Now, I want us to think about when some of these things don't happen. What happens in a church? And Grace, here's the kind of 
opportunity for you to do a little bit of internal assessment. Assess this this in your own life. Assess this in this community. Think about it for a moment. When the leaders and the people are stirred up around an issue, but God hasn't spoken, what do you get? You get a cause-driven church. See, people are kind of pulled in different ways, but God's not in it. There's no sustaining power of the Spirit. There's a flurry of energy, but it's a cause, and it doesn't last. We need to make sure that God is speaking and that He is moving our hearts and He's moving this community. What, happened when, when, what happens when the, the leaders try themselves to stir up the people, but they don't rely on the Spirit to do the stirring in the people's hearts? We get a legalistic and a works-driven church where the leaders walk around with big whips trying to get everybody to go. No, we need a people who depend upon the Spirit and His deep work in all of our lives, not just in a few of our lives. What happens when the people are stirring, feeling stirred by God, but the leaders aren't leading, the leaders aren't catalyzing the work out of conviction and courage? What do you get? A chaotic and disunified church because different people are pulling in different directions. And ultimately, the leaders aren't leading and doing what God calls them to. We need leaders of courage and conviction. What about when God speaks and the leaders catalyze, but the people are passive and dormant? We get a frustrated church because the leaders feel like they're trying to get everybody going. And the, everybody's feeling quite pestered by the leaders, a little frustrated. Why do you keep trying to get me to do stuff? Just leave me alone. I just want to come on Sundays. Go back to doing what I'm doing. No, frustration can loom large in that context. Let's allow God to get hold of our hearts and use all of us in his plans and his purpose. Judges 5.2 says this, when the leaders lead, the followers follow, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's this beautiful thing. God's given you leaders as a grace to this community. We, we need to see them as they convicted and used by God to catalyze his purposes in your heart and into this city. That you would find yourself saying, yes, Lord, won't you use me as part of your people to fulfill your purpose?